If you've been awake these past few days, you know that Grant Wall, the renowned soccer writer and my former Sports Illustrated colleague, died last week in Qatar while covering the World Cup. And instead of adding to the chorus of memories, I just want to play a brief clip from when Grant appeared on this podcast back in 2018. I asked him specifically about living the dream of journalism. You know, for during the Men's World Cup in Russia, our studio for Fox Sports was literally in Red Square with St. Basil's Cathedral as the backdrop. And I would sit there sometimes before we started a show and just sort of look around and be like, how the hell did I end up here? Right. And this is incredible. And I never would have thought I would be here with Gus Hiddink and Kobe Jones and, and like all these people I used to write about and watch on TV. And so I, I like the fact that there's still something in me that can feel that. Grant Wall, a hell of a writer, a hell of a reporter, a hell of a journalist. Rest well. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of 10 books and the host of Two Writers Sling and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. And today's guest is Rick Hummel, a.k.a. The Commish, the recently retired St. Louis Post-Dispatch baseball writer who debuted at the newspaper in 1971 and started covering the Cardinals in 1978. This is episode number 289. Let's sling some yang. Dad, your podcast sucks, and you smell like vinegar and cottage cheese. Okay, the legendary commissioner, Rick Hummel. <laughs> you announced recently that you're retiring from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch after 51 years. And when you see legendary, when people say the legendary Rick Hummel, the legendary commissioner, does that make you just feel old? Or do you feel do you feel like a legend? It's nice to hear. It's it's a kind of a strong word. I, I would think, uh, you know, durable might be more accurate or... <laughs> Or, or, or will they ever go away? <laughs> I'll start with a very basic question. You've been doing this for a long, long time. You were a veteran when I was covering baseball 20 years ago. It was like, oh, that's a commissioner boat. And I know you'll still be doing some, you'll still be doing freelance work. You'll still be contributing to the newspaper, but you are retiring your position with the paper. Why now and why the decision to do so? The job has changed a lot over the years with the online quotient involved. And you're working maybe a time and a half or two times as long as you used to work when you started out. It's more tiring. You have to do maybe two stories at the ballpark and then one overnight for the online version. And, you know, the day goes from like two to two. That's a long time, you know, 2 p.m. to 2 a.m. And then you might have a, a day game slapped in there right after that. Uh, plus, I I looked at the our pension plan about a year ago, and I thought, hmm, this is interesting. I, I had assumed that the pension plan stopped paying you at age 65. No, the next 12 years that I got in, the you know, the next 11 years I worked, it multiplied ridiculously to a point where I'm, I'm, I can make more money now not working than I did when I was working. Are you concerned about just missing it, missing the buzz, missing the beat, missing the interaction, missing the banter, everything about it? Are you concerned about sort of losing that from your life? I don't think so because I'm going to be going down there. I program myself to maybe go down there at least once for every series at home. I won't be doing any traveling. I'm going to go to spring training on my own dime and see how that how that goes. I, how much work I can get done down there. If I don't get enough work to 
to make it worth my while to stay. I will watch a little bit and then I'll go home, but I do want to stay around that way. But I, I plan to do some freelancing, maybe even for the wire services one time. They need somebody to cover a game for them. I can do that for AP. And I don't think I'm going to miss it because it's not that far away. It's like I moved to a different town. I'll still be around. I covered baseball for a magazine, which is drastically different than covering it for a newspaper. I did it for about four, four and a half years. And that was going to about 80 games a year. By the end, I was like, never again. It's tiring. It's exhausting. I felt like the players weren't very happy to see me. I didn't want to watch another baseball game. Like I got <laughs> now very quick. You've done this for an insane amount of time. How did you maintain the love for it? Because every game truly is different depending on the starting pitcher. The lineups can change. I've never seen two games even close to being the same. And uh, I do miss the strategy part with all the new rules have taken away from us. You know, I, I didn't want the DH to come into the National League. I enjoyed seeing the pitcher hit. Yeah, he might would probably make an out, but what if he gets a bunt down? What if he shortens up and slaps one past the third baseman? Would I rather see that or rather see a DH strike out? Well, I think I'd rather see the pitcher hit. Um, I mean, I, I'll, I'll still watch the game. But the, the fans want to be involved. This is the one game the fans can be involved in strategically because there's so much time between pitches, less time coming up this year, but where they can say, you know, what I think you're going to do here, you know, that rather than, well, here he is. If he strikes out, maybe the next guy will hit a home run. You know, that's that's the only strategy we see now. Do you feel like the game is factually worse than it was, whatever, a decade ago? Oh, much worse. And, and decades before that. I got to see the, the Herzog teams of the 80s on the AstroTurf. That was a different game than anybody played then or has ever played. They just took off and ran. And, and if you threw them off, so what? They're going to run again the next time. They had one or two guys that hit the ball, the ballpark, Jack Clark or whoever, Joaquin Anwar said he could. He did it about twice a year. And, right. and then, But that was, you know, I never saw a team play the game differently than the other, well, 29 teams now, but there weren't quite that many then. But uh, it's just put people on their heels. And that was fun to watch. And that I guess that was spoiled. That was 40 years ago almost now where that happened. And it's, it's progressed. Maybe the, the new rule this year where you can only throw to a, a base, to first base twice with a runner on base there. Maybe that will increase base stealing. We, we don't have to depend on three-run home runs so much. Maybe the managers will say, you know what? One run in this situation is a good idea. You don't hear that much, but maybe they'll think that way. It's weird. I live in Southern California where the Angels play. The Angels are the weirdest thing I've ever seen because you have two generational players on the same team and the team is boring and isn't very good. You know, it's weird because it's not just two great players. It's not like just having Dave Winfield and Don Mattingly. It's having two almost iconic major league players in Shohei Otani and Mike Trout. And you see the amount of money they're getting. And yet, I don't know any of my kids' contemporaries who who would recognize either man on the street. Um, I don't know either of my kids' contemporaries who if I said, Emmett, my son's name is Emmett, if I said, We're gonna, let's go to the Angels game, tell a friend he can come along, who actually would want to come along. And I wonder if you see, on the one hand, you see these contracts and you think baseball must be doing great. And on the other hand, I don't know a kid under 20 who's really interested in it. Do you feel like baseball has a problem or are we complainers just making it up a little bit? I think baseball thinks it has a problem because it keeps changing the rules every two or three years. You know, you had, you've still maintained the the 10th inning rule where they put a ghost runner at second base in, a, in the tie game with, with nobody out. And each team gets that opportunity, top and bottom of the inning. And I was stunned to hear a player like Paul Goldschmidt say that he likes that rule. 
because it says it gets the game over with faster. I thought <laughs> I thought they didn't care how long they play. Well, they do. <laughs> they do right. care. But I don't like it because suddenly for the first time you might get to see a bunt though. Where the guy might say, you know, manager says, let's bunt this guy to third base. Well, how many guys can actually do that? You see them bunt in batting practice sometimes. They throw the bat out there and the ball dribbles away and they try again. And then they go swing and hit the ball out of the ballpark. I don't like that rule. I'm not too fond of the of the three the three batter rule for pitchers to come in and have to face three guys. Although if you can't get three guys out in the big leagues, maybe you shouldn't be in the big leagues. Right. The, the DH was not anything that St. Louis fans wanted to see, you know. When you had Albert Pujols being the DH last year, hitting home runs like crazy. Well, they liked it a lot then, but that, he's gone now. Wait, so I found an article from you. It's July 20th, 1971, St. Louis Post-Dispatch. The headline was, who was that soft-spoken, tireless rider? And the lead was, <laughs> bicycle racing is a young man's game, but don't tell Henry Meyer. He won't believe you. All but one of the 13 competitors in Sunday's Missouri Bicycle Track Championship at Penrose Park was under 26 years old. One contestant, Henry Meyer, Kansas City, was a little older, approximately 30 years older. Meyer noted on his application blank for the races that he was plus 35. And that that's the first byline I could find by you. That was the first byline I had at the Post-Dispatch. Okay. So it's 1971. You flew in from Colorado Springs. You were in the Army. You were moonlining as a newspaper uh, reporter, the morning newspaper reporter for the morning newspaper there. I'm reading this from a piece you wrote or sort of talking about your farewell. Did you know what you were doing? Not really, I guess. Um, I didn't know what I wanted to do either. I just wanted to work at the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. I had offers to go to Dayton and to Memphis, or at least to try out there and then St. Louis. And I, for some reason, thought that Dayton and Memphis were, would be stepping stones to St. Louis. That is now newspapering work. They're different entities. You know, they're both they're all fine papers, but went to St. Louis today. They like what I did. In those days, you had to work the desk a lot in the morning. We were still in the afternoon paper, so you'd have these fine 4 a.m. to 10.30 shifts. Those were good on your health. And uh, and then you'd get to write after that. And as the years went along, I, I I did high schools and stuff, and then Spirits of St. Louis basketball, and and then boxing with Leon Spinks, winning winning the title and losing the title. And, and uh, uh, finally got to do some baseball in 73 for the first time. It was my first season of doing baseball. And and I kind of liked it. And I once I got over my intimidation, I guess, of, of some of the players that, you know, you read about and have and heard about. Um, it looked, it was something I wanted to do. Now, I don't know, I, have, did I ever figure out what I was doing? That's a good question. <laughs> I mean, you try to figure out what people want to read and and maybe secondarily what you want to write. So I started my career at the Nashville, Tennessee, and I interned there in 93, started there in 94. So I, I had a good taste, at least, of walking down and seeing the printing press printing out the paper and smelling the paper when it comes off. And it was a two newspaper town. It was a national banner in the Tennessee. And so I had the, the sense of competitiveness and competing against another writer on your beat. And I loved it. Like, I loved everything about that. Do you feel like when you talk to younger writers about newspapers, and you even talked to them about, you mentioned working on the desk, that there's any possible way to get a sense today for what that was like? Is there any way a modern journalist, a 30-year-old reporter for Bleacher Report, can understand what what that even was. It would be hard to, to convince them that there was a different way to do this, you know, in those years. Um, I mean, maybe they could watch an old movie where there was a typewriter involved, you know, and guys would either sit down at a, at a manual typewriter, a royal typewriter at your desk, or carry an Olive, Olivetti with you on the road. But then if you had to do that, you also had to carry a transmission device to send the story. Um, I don't think they would care. But they're honed in much more than I 
ever was or ever could be on the combination of print and online and online is is leaving print in the dust now and that if those people are more attuned to online they're the ones that should be working right now then do you still get a print newspaper oh yeah yeah and uh, my wife gets mad when the ink runs off on the towels you know and I, I try to wash my hands after every reading but i guess i don't right. do a very good job Wait, why? A serious question. If you got the newspaper online, you'd get the more, I'm sure you do get online, but if you read it online instead of in print, you'd get the more updated version and you would get stories that, why the loyalty to print still? Because if you've left off a story somewhere or, you know, or you want to see it, it jumps to another page or you want to see a story, you, you go online and you have to battle through all these ads to find where you were before. And sometimes if your computer doesn't work, you don't get it at all, you know, but, but if you have no Wi-Fi and unless the carrier forgets to deliver to your house, you've got the paper. It's there somewhere. You'll find it. Well, you've covered a lot of fascinating figures and moments. I want to ask you about a couple. You mentioned uh, you alluded to Leon Spinks. Um, I have a story in front of me from the Post-Dispatch. January 26, 1975, Rick Hummel, with help from St. Louisans, Claudel Atkins and Leon Spinks, and further help from two defaults, the United States boxing team scored its first victory in the history over the Soviet Union, defeating the Russians 5-4 Saturday night at Q Auditorium. Spinks' victory gave U.S. a 5-3 lead and enabled it to come over the work of Russian heavyweight Viktor Olenak. And you write about the sort of impact of Leon Spinks. I had forgotten Leon Spinks and Michael Spinks' brother were from St. Louis. I remember being a kid and getting the Leon Spinks cover with his missing teeth and the tongue sticking out between his teeth. And obviously... <laughs> He beat Muhammad Ali, then lost to Muhammad Ali, then kind of had a very sad downfall. What was it like to cover a very young Leon Spinks entering his prime? It was fun covering him and Michael both. Now, Leon was much more outspoken than Michael. Michael really didn't like boxing that much, but he couldn't make any money after he got back. They both won the Olympic gold medals in, in 76. And Leon wanted to keep fighting and did. And Michael didn't, did not want to keep fighting and, and ended up working for Monsanto, a, a great a firm in St. Louis, but they had him work on the 12 to 8 janitorial ship. It wasn't exactly what he had in mind, right. you know, for a job there. So he had to go back to boxing to make any money. But Leon was engaging. And, you know, once he got to be champion, he was a little harder to deal with. You know, I just, so many things were going on. It was almost going right over his head, some of this stuff. He um, had been between uh, his heavyweight title and his rematch with Ali, he was picked up by the police at a, at a White Castle restaurant about four in the morning. And, and it, the Globe Democrat, the other paper in town, ran a picture of him that he had been found with cocaine in his hat band of all places. I don't know why he had it there, but he did. And they made a big deal out of it. So in between the fights, he's up at the Kutcher's training camp in upstate New York there. And I was covering a Mets series. I thought, well, I'll go up and, and see Leon for two or three days before the rematch in New Orleans in September. And I'm in the back of the room. They have a press conference by the swimming pool. And um, Leon's talking away and he's, he points in the back and says, get him out of here. And I'm thinking, we, we're tight. It doesn't mean me, surely. And then this big hand, this big meaty arm hand grips my arm and says, I think you'd better go. Well, it was Mr. T was his bodyguard. And I thought, you know, do I want to take on Mr. T right now or not? I, I, I'll, I'll go and figure this out later. But <laughs> I said to Leon later on, that wasn't the same paper. I didn't do that. You know, he never he never bought into that. He thought everything was the same. And we, we never really spoke much again. Wait, I have in front of me because he beat Muhammad Ali on February 15th, 1978. <laughs> the headline is uh, Spinks beats Ali for title. And your lead, it was in Las Vegas. The joke's on you, Leon Spinks said. 
the man upstairs made it come true. The St. Louis Inn was speaking to reporters after one of the most stunning sports upsets in history. He had just snatched away Muhammad Ali's world heavyweight boxing crown Wednesday night at the Hilton Pavilion. In the capital of gambling, there had been no official odds posted on such a possibility. It would have been the tantamount to Poland beating Germany in World War II or to the cost of living receding. Besides divine providence, Spinks had an indomitable spirit, furiously flying fists and absolute confidence. Muhammad Ali had been champion for all ages. This was the 20th title defense for the 36-year-old Ali. Think of it, Muhammad Ali, an ex-champion again. You're still my champion, Spinks said to Ali in the press conference after a nationally televised match. It's a freaking great story, actually. Did you give uh, Leon Spinks any chance of winning that fight, or were you just there to watch Muhammad Ali beat a guy from St. Louis? I gave him no chance of winning the fight, but this is like one of the last fights on over-the-air TV. It was on NBC TV, and they put me next to one of the judges, you know, at, at ringside. And, and the Globe Democrat had a seat next to one of the other judges, and the referee was the third judge. And I'm kind of stealing a look. I'm making my scorecard out. I'm stealing a look at the guy's card next to mine. It looks kind of like mine. I just make sure I wanted to watch watching the same fight he was. And I had Ali wanting to fight, barely. And they gave his decision was Ali eight, Spinks six, and, and one draw. And I thought, okay, I'm preparing my mind that, okay, Spinks is going to get maybe the same call from the other two judges. And I got, okay, local guy comes close, but, you know, doesn't win title, whatever. The next two judges, including the referee, vote for Spinks. They say now the new heavyweight champion of the world, Leon Spinks. And I'm dumbfounded. I, I climb up to the ring rope and I'm hanging on the ring ropes there. I'm thinking, what am I going to do now? I'm not, I'm not prepared to write this story. <laughs> Fortunately, we we're still in the afternoon paper then and I had a chance to compose myself a little bit, but I was flabbergasted. Do you end up feeling attached to athletes like Leon Spinks? You know, he lost his title defense, Ali. That was kind of it for him. And he had a very sad boxing downfall, a very sad life downfall. When you're done covering athletes, do you feel an attachment to them too still, or do you just sort of, you? that's it, you just move on to the next story? No, because a, a lot of them, especially in baseball, choose to live here after they're done playing. You know, Ted Simmons, for instance, or, or Whitey Herzog is a great manager, or some of the other guys, you know, uh, Ozzie Smith lives here still. Um, so you, you see him a lot, and, and you can't really divorce yourself from him if you wanted to, and you really don't want to. There's a different element of athlete that probably comes through here that not everybody, actually not everybody can play here, but not everybody knows about how comfortable it is to play here. It's harder to play in New York or L.A. or some other place where they have much more media. It's, it's fairly easy to play here. Right. I mean, we're, I think we're, we're fair. We don't have any access to grind for the most part here. So I, I think they just don't realize how good it is to live here. But that, I, that digress a little bit. It, it, I, I keep track of all these guys pretty much because a lot of them are still here. You wrote a piece in uh, October 12th, 1980. I'm taking you down memory lane here, Rick. Um, cards report card, no straight A's. And you did a report card of the St. Louis Cardinals senior. And you gave George Hendrick an A- minus and Ken Oberkfell an A- minus and Keith Hernandez an A-. minus. And then you gave like you gave Terry Kennedy a C-. minus. You gave Silvio Martinez a D, Roy Thomas a D. And I wonder, how hard is it when you're super close to a team, you're covering a team, they see you the next day to write negatively about players? If they see you around all the time, I, I think they don't care much what you say. You know, you may be critical sometime and you go into the clubhouse and you can see them kind of glaring at you. But then they just wanted to see you show up the next day. They didn't really have anything to say, you know, other than 
you mentioned one of those report cards. I gave Steve Swisher, I think, a D minus. I'm not sure if that was the same one or not, but uh, but if it's a D or D minus. And and next spring training, he was all bent out of shape at the batting cage. He, he says, "How can you give me a D minus?" I said, "We well, hit like 106 or so." <laughs> I'm not sure what you expected me to give you there, but. I used to kind of enjoy writing those, and the players really enjoyed reading them. I, I, th- I thought they didn't care. But in those days, again, you know, players say, I don't read the paper. They read the paper then in 1980 because there wasn't anything else you weren't going to see anywhere else except in the paper. they thank you for giving them a good grade. Or, and if you give them a bad grade, they'd kind of debate it with you, but they, they knew it was part of the process. Did the relationship with players change when they stopped reading the paper for the most part? I guess it changed when their agents read the paper for them, maybe, uh, and said, did you see what so-and-so said about you yesterday? And that was the, probably the biggest difference. Usually the players or their wives read them, and that was fine. But then the agents got involved. And for one reason or another, it, it, I don't think anybody reads the paper anymore now but, and from the player standpoint, because they don't even read it online. What may they do online? And sometimes the stories are different online. Most times they are. You know, in, the, in the paper, our deadlines are so crazy, were so crazy, I should say now that you couldn't get much of what you wanted to say in there in the first place. What's the angriest a player's ever been at you? Okay, this this is, goes back to John Denny, I guess, who was a good, a talented pitcher in the 70s. And he, he had a temper and he blew up one night in Philadelphia. He had a five to nothing lead. And Frank Pulley was the umpire at home plate. And he, he threw Denny out of the game in like the third or fourth inning. Denny had an easy win. The Phillies were beaten that night, it seemed. And, and after the game, I went in to talk to Teddy Simmons, who was the catcher, and, and Simmons said, you know, he's going to have to curtail his temper. He could be a 20-game winner if he could just, you know, dial it down a little bit. And Denny agreed. He said, you know, he's exactly right. I got to do better about this. I cost myself a win there. So in those days, the Sporting News had one correspondent from each city as their guy every week. So I thought I'd rewrite this Denny story for them. And I sent it to him. I thought it was a pretty good story, except that the Sporting News meant a picture and a caption that said, Redbird Redneck. And I thought, you oh. know, I don't think that's going to go over real good. <laughs> so the next time Danny pitched, he refused to talk to me. And the next time and the next time and the next time it was about 10 more starts maybe. And finally, we're in Pittsburgh right toward the end of the season. I said, John, we got to talk about this. Why are you not talking to me? He said, I think you know. I said, well, I think I do. But why don't you let me know? He said, it's about that picture in the sporting news, that story you read there. I said, well, John, we don't write the picture captions. We just send this stuff in. And I patiently explained to him how newspapering worked, that you wrote it. <clears throat> I mean, nowadays you kind of write your own headlines online, but then you didn't write them. You just sent it in. Somebody else looked at it. Maybe several somebody else has looked at it. And he said, oh, you know, with up to a half hour conversation, he says, well, thank you for telling me about all this. I understand a lot better now, but I'm still not talking to you. <laughs> what? <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> so... After that, he went to the Phillies, and, and we got a little closer again. But I was—I didn't know what to say to that. When I, 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 you know, lined it up all up for him. Here, here it is, John. This is the way it is, and this is why it happened. Okay, great. See you later. <laughs> That's really funny. Also, his punishment came in December seventh, nineteen seventy-nine, when the Cardinals traded him to the Cleveland Indians. So back then, that was the uh, the death knell of your career for a little bit. You won that one. I did, but then he got to the Phil in another trade. He got to the Phillies. One of my most fascinating moments as a kid, I was riveted times a million by the Ozzie Smith, Gary Templeton trade of 1982. Uh, it was a swapping of marquee shortstops 
Gary Templeton, growing up, I was like, this guy, this is my guy. Like, this is my guy. He looked cool. He had two R's in his first name. He had 100 hits from each side of the plate. He was a triples machine. And also, he flipped off the fans of St. Louis, and Whitey Herzog had to yank him down from the dugout. And I just remember thinking, this is the coolest player on the planet. Like, this guy is so cool. And then they traded him. They they traded him to San Diego for Ozzie Smith in a trade that wound up being a just for the Cardinals, one of the great trades in the franchise's history. I don't know. What do you remember about covering Gary Templeton and about that trade in particular? He was one of the top 10 talents I ever covered in, in baseball because he could make plays. He had a tremendous throwing arm besides being a, a really good hitter. He, in those days, he struck out more than most players did, but still he could hit from both sides of the plate, as you alluded. And he had a great throwing arm, sometimes erratic, but he had Hernandez at first base who caught everything that didn't, you know, didn't go on the stands. He, he probably saved him 10, 15 errors a year, but he would kind of veer off. Sometimes he was moody. Sometimes I, I like dealing with him a lot, but every time something would happen, you know, he, he'd do something or say something and, he, and his, his agent, Richie Bree would have to jump in and kind of smooth it out. And I asked Gary one time, I said, how come, how come your agent has to keep <laughs> coming in here and taking, taking care of your business? He says, why not? It's just the way he is. That's that's the, I, I like it that way. I want him to do that for me. The story you talked about him flipping the fans off, it was a, a day game after a night game. It was hot August. One of the West Coast teams was down the Giants, I think. And he had a kind of a hamstring injury. And he went over for 5, let's say, a Wednesday night. And he was going to play again Thursday. And Whitey told him before the game, he says, look, I know you're hurt. Don't run any harder than, than you have to. Well, the first inning, the first time you batted, he struck out. The ball rolled to the screen. You know, this is generally you, you try to take off and make first base, but he, he was told not to run hard, so he didn't. Well, the fans didn't know all the backdrop of this. They, they booed him right away. It was hot. It got worse. They started throwing ice at him, and and Bruce Fremming was umpiring third base, I think. And, and after a while, Tempe tried to get himself thrown out, basically, including grabbing his crotch. That was what pretty much did it. <laughs> and Bruce says, oh, you're gone. And then why do you pull him down the steps? And Gene Tennis wanted to strangle him at that time. Gary went in for, I, they called it chemical dependency then. I don't know what he, would, what he was working with there, but there was some drug issue, I guess, involved. But I, I think he was a, a wonderful talent. When the trade was made, I thought, well, boy, I don't think this is going to be a very good trade because this guy's such a good player. And Ozzie Smith, it's 220. Well, Ozzie Smith ended up hitting 300 a couple of times for the Cardinals and maybe 275 for his career. And, and Gary had, he was the one Padre in 84 if you remember when they went to the World Series and they didn't have Kevin McReynolds, they had virtually nothing on their team except Tempe and, and Terry Kennedy. He was the best player they had against the Tigers. The Tigers probably are the most dominant team in the World Series versus the losing team that I can remember seeing, other than maybe the Yankees in San Diego and it'd be 98. And, and Tempe was not, he, that was his assist stage. He was good, but you know, the Padres kept losing, you know, 13 to six every game. <laughs> but I loved the guy I, as a player. And I, I, he was a friend of mine. I don't see him much anymore. He's in California somewhere. Uh, he made a play in, in Pittsburgh one time where he was playing shortstop, and the ball was lost by the outfielders in right field, between right and right center field. Not left center, right center. He made the catch on the run. And Chuck Tanner was managing the Pirates and said, I have never, ever seen anything like that. And Chuck was pretty effusive anyway, but still, I, I took him at his word that he, that he had never seen anything like that because I sure hadn't. August 27th, 1981, Rick Hummel byline, cards in no hurry for Tempe to return. And this is what you wrote. It's actually really good. It's Dateline San Diego. When the Cardinals chartered flight from St. Louis landed here late Wednesday night, 
there seemed to be an overriding consensus that no one much cared if Gary Templeton, their tempestuous and suspended shortstop, came back or not. I've been over backward and I've been in his corner a long time, said one player, but this is incredibly ridiculous. What he did was embarrassing to me and the fans. Most players interviewed did not want to be quoted by name, but most seemed quite satisfied that backup Mike Ramsey, who replaced Templeton after the later was ejected amid a stream of obscene actions in a Wednesday game in St. Louis, would be more than an adequate replacement. We can win with Ramsey, said catcher Gene Tennis. At least you know he'll give you 100%. With Templeton, you never knew. You never knew if he'd even talk to you or not. Ramsey, understandably, was reluctant to comment on what could be important. <laughs> I want to play, but this is an unfortunate situation, Ramsey said. I would like to get into his head and find out what he's thinking. Many players said they had gone about as far as they could with Templeton's emotional cycle. If he comes back, said another player, I don't know what's going to happen in the clubhouse. He's done something you just don't do. It's a freaking great story. I wonder what that's like walking around and getting players to talk anonymously. Is it one guy after another saying, you can't use my name, you can't use my name? Or do you do you tell people, don't worry, I won't use your name? Sometimes it's a combination. They might say, don't use my name, but I'll tell you this. Or they'll say something and that hasn't that ground rule hasn't been established yet. I say, can I use that? And and some will say yes. And like Gene Tennis did. Gene Tennis may have had several other of those quotes too, by the way, in that story, but yeah. <laughs> as you may have surmised, but but <laughs> I was thinking that. I wasn't <laughs> um but other you know, otherwise, you know, you if you're if you're unsure, you, you want to make make sure that that player knows it's going to be out there. You know, when we started out, some of these guys thought that this never hit the wire, like it would only be said in St. Louis. If they said something you know, about some other player in New York or some other team, it would never be out there. But the wires picked it up, and now they it's out there one second later. Now, if you, if you say it, everybody right. knows. But they didn't know that then. I, I didn't promise all of them anonymity, but the, but the ones I, that you kind of a feel for it, the guys that don't don't care if they're quoted or not. And tennis didn't care. He's just he was a man's man, and and. Uh, uh, some other guys whose jobs maybe weren't as secure or he hadn't been around as long as he had would, would say, I, I don't know. And I, I really don't like using anonymous. If you if you feel that way, you should be good to feel it, like backing it up too. Have you ever said to a guy, well, I want to talk anonymously and you say, I can't, I can't do that. Or do you allow that? I may have said it a time or two, but mostly I, I allowed it. It didn't happen that often. It wasn't like I was doing this every day where I had to have, you know, pro or con every time something happened. I just want to say Mike Ramsey played six years in St. Louis, batted 245 with two home runs and 54 RBIs. He was not the next Gary Templeton. He was not, but uh, he had a had pretty good run for them. And in 82, even, he played about six weeks when Ozzy got hurt. And they won the, the division and they won the pennant there. They won the World Series. That's one of their last World Series wins. And he was very good. I just saw him maybe... A couple months ago, we had a reunion of the 82 team. And uh, if it weren't for him, they wouldn't have won. I was going to ask you about 82 in particular. Uh, well, I have a story in front of me. So in 1982, for people who don't know, the Cardinals beat the Brewers in the World Series. For me, it's a very memorable World Series. I think it's the second World Series I actually paid attention to. The first one being Yankees-Dodgers a year earlier. And the guy I remember from that team, first and foremost, is not Ozzie Smith it's, or, or Keith Hernandez. It's Joaquin Andujar. And... You wrote a piece, October 21, 82. Andujar said he'd do it, then did it. Before Wednesday night's final game of the World Series, Joaquin Andujar had served notice to the Cardinals traveling secretary, saying that he better get the champagne ready. I told you there was no way they were going to beat me. Andujar reminded him afterward amid the Cardinals celebration. He had told his teammates the same thing before the game. No fuckers are going to stop me. I'm going to beat anybody tonight. When I was in high school and I took Spanish, 
there was no name for Jeff. So the teacher, there's no direct translation for Jeff. So the teacher had me make up my own name and I picked Joaquin. Joaquin Andohar, true story. I freaking loved Joaquin Andohar. I thought he was crazy brilliant. I thought he was super exciting. He was dynamic. I'm sure if you were an enemy of him, he was loathsome. What was he like to cover? Well, you never knew from day to day. It was mostly a pleasure. You know, he was very cooperative, but sometimes he would just go off the rails. Um, and the 85 World Series, they were playing Kansas City, and he was going to pitch the third game in St. Louis. And Carlos had won the first two in Kansas City. It seemed like they are going to be on the way to the, the title, which they didn't win. And Joaquin was going to be the third game pitcher, and I, there was an off day, and I thought I'd, I, I want to do my off day story on him. And, and I went in there and talked to him for half hour, maybe a little bit longer. And I said, Joaquin, you know, there's going to be a press conference later on. All my friends will be out there and the writers just down the hall here. And would you go down there and, and just answer some questions at that press conference because they're kind of expecting you. And it would be, you know, I would feel good if you did that because I think you should. He said, sure, I will do that for you, Mr. Ricky. And so he goes down there. And I'm thinking, you know, maybe I better monitor this just to see what's going on. I got my story, but I thought something could <laughs> go astray here. And he gets up there and the first question is fairly innocuous. And he sees me in the back and uh, he points out there and says, you can go ask Mr. Ricky Hummel. He will tell you all about me. And he walked off the stage. I said, no, no, that's not what I meant. <laughs> or there was a time he was going for his 20th win. And there, it's in August, August, like August is 6th. It's pretty early in, in the 84, I think it was. And I'd written a story for the Sunday paper. It was a Sunday afternoon game about the long story, 50 inches. And in there, Joaquin had indicated he'd had trouble with the umpires over the years. There were some umpires he didn't get along with, and they didn't get along with him. And, and in this game, the Montreal Expos beat him like six to four, and he walked a bunch of guys. And afterward, he's railing at me that I cost him the win because I got the umpires against him. And he's going on and on and on and on. And the players were amused by this for a while. Now they're getting tired of it. You know, the players dancing around. And Jack Clark walks over and says, Joaquin, why don't you just shut the hell up, okay? <laughs> and that was the end of that because wow. he was definitely afraid of Jack Clark. <laughs> was Jack Clark a scary guy to cover or no? No, he was great. I was mean, he? his reputation was he was a tough guy, a bad guy from San Francisco, but he was one of the best guys I've ever covered. And, and every team that that he played for after that, which was considerable, he went to the Yankees and Boston and San Diego and a couple others, Dodgers. Uh, he, he always would want to see me whenever I – would be there either on the road or he was coming into St. Louis, but he was wonderful. He, he was a, a deadly honest man. Maybe that didn't play all the time in San Francisco, but he'd tell you what he was thinking. And that was great. Before we continue with two writers, Ling Yang, a word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. And today I'm holding open auditions for the new two writers, Sling and Yang Royal Retro spokesperson. Okay. Okay. Everyone. Thank you for attending. So we need you to really sell it. Royal Retros, awesome clothing, throwback stuff, USFL, cool website, royalretros.com. All right, um, Mr. Nate Lewis. Nate Lewis, you read the script first. I don't want to wear my Aaron Rodgers jersey anymore. Give me some Chuck Fusina. Uh, can you try that with a little more emotion? Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, that was that was great. All right, next up, um, Theo Lewis, go. Uh, I don't want to wear Alan Rodgers again. Give me some Chuck Cena. 
Um, yeah, don't, no, 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 don't call us. We'll, we'll, we'll definitely reach out to you. September 9th, 1998, Rick Hummel byline, McGuire ends chase for a record. The production was the summer of 62. The star was Mark McGuire. The reviews were off the charts Tuesday night at Bush Stadium. McGuire's shortest homer of the season, 341 feet, engendered the largest, longest roar of this or many other seasons. McGuire's fourth inning first pitch liner over the left field wall of Chicago Cubs right-hander Steve Trassel was his 62nd homer, breaking the most hollowed record in baseball. So I was also covering baseball at this time. I was more on the Bonds trail. I wrote a biography of Bonds. I spent a lot of time following around Bonds. I look back and I think, how did I believe all this? I look at McGuire and look how enormous he was. And I look at Bonds with his head this big. And I look at Sosa, who was an absolute twig when he was coming up with the White Sox. How did I believe this? How did I fall for all this? And I wonder, looking back, having covered that era and all these records being broken, how you feel about it in hindsight? Well, you wish you'd known more about what was going on. But to, to preface it, the McGuire did hit 49 home runs, I think, as a, as a rookie with Oakland. Yeah. Uh, maybe how many years before that? Maybe eight years, 10 years before that. It wasn't like he couldn't hit home runs. He did. Now, did he weigh 255 pounds? Then? No, he probably weighed 215 or 220. He was, he was tall, but not that muscular. But I don't know. Um, it happened, and we, we can't beat ourselves up over it. We wish we'd known more about it. And I didn't vote for those guys for the Hall of Fame when they came up. I did actually vote for McGuire a couple of years. And then when he admitted he'd been on steroids, I stopped voting for him. And then Bonds and Clemens, there was too much evidence to suggest that they were not, they weren't at least acquainted with the, with the process. But not, and when the Hall of Fame election came up the other day for the, that era, I've been waiting for that to happen because I thought, you know, if, if those guys are in the Hall, go in the Hall of Fame, I want the Hall of Famers to decide. I'm not smart enough to do this. Let's have the Hall of Famers on this ballot decide. And they decided they didn't want them. I was surprised. I said, I will accept anything they, they say. If they say Bonds and Clemens should be in, more power to them. Go for it. But they said no. I was surprised by that. But I, I wish I'd known more about the steroid culture in the 90s. But uh, it wasn't just the hitters that were using stuff. The pitchers were. And there were a bunch of guys who used steroids who were lousy players before and after they <laughs> used it. Yeah. Did we, do you feel like we, as journalists, I'm not targeting you. I'm literally saying we with a very emphatic we. We screwed this up at all. Did we fail to recognize something? Did we not cover it well? Or do you think that was an impossibility? I've thought that, sure. But I, I've kind of gone over my head, well, how, how would I have known? What should I have known? And you drive yourself crazy with that. But I, I, I'll stand by what I, what I wrote. That, and that was an exciting season. In fact, it was it was draining because McGuire was drained every time, and I had to be the pool reporter. You know, if guys would be coming into town late in the season to you know cover this Jason Stark or whoever would come in town, and, and, uh, and McGuire, if McGuire wouldn't talk to him, I'd have to go down and interview him. And I would get the most. Vanilla quotes you've ever heard, you know, uh, after a game, he might go 0 for 4 or 1 for 4 of the single. And he said, that isn't really very much. I said, that, that doesn't matter, Mac. These guys want anything I can give them. So just, just bear with me here a little bit. <laughs> give me anything you got. And, and that was about it. It was it was hard for me, too. I wouldn't have talked to him after an 0 for 4 game if it was if the, the record hadn't been broken or he hadn't had a home run or they hadn't won the game or whatever. I'd, I'd let him alone. Was he a likable guy to cover? Yeah, and maybe more so after he stopped playing. I remember the day he came there, and then he hit uh, 
21 home runs in like oh, two months. This is toward the end of the season in, in uh, the 97 when he came over from Oakland. And he calls me aside one day and says, he says, look, he says, when I got traded over here, they said the only guy I had to talk to was you. We were the only paper in town. I said, well, yeah, but don't hit so many home runs. We're not used to seeing that stuff here. That's what's happened. <laughs> this is your awesome. fault. <laughs> that's, that's fantastic. I was looking for the first time you wrote about Albert Pujols. And what I found was um, December 12th, 2000. And the story was actually, the headline was, Jockety sees no good coming of A-Rod deal. And there's a tiny paragraph at the end. And it said, the Cardinals, if they would move to Tease, would be left with Craig Paquette and Placido Polanco as possible third baseman. Fast rising Albert Pujols, who jumped from class A to class AAA last season, is not figured to be far away. And that was the mention of Albert Pujols. <laughs> in the first. And I wonder, when I was covering baseball and Pujols came along, I'm going to be honest here. I did not find him very likable. I found him hard to cover coming in from afar. I thought he was kind of standoffish. I didn't always love the way he talked to fans. But am I misreading him? Was he just a joy to cover and I'm misreading the young Albert Pujols? Um, he became... It was a joy to cover this year, and and many of the years he was with the Cardinals the first time around. I think there was a language gap that that concerned him early on, even though he did go to school in Kansas City. As his career went on in the in the two thousands, if you could get to him, he'd give you anything you wanted. But sometimes he didn't always make himself available. But uh, I did have that one paragraph I wrote there that I, I was onto something there. I remember the next spring, I'm talking to his AAA manager. Galen Pitts behind the batting cage one time thinking, well, you know, this is, he spent a week with you in the playoffs last year. You're really going to enjoy having him this year. He said, I'm not going to have him. <laughs> he didn't. Yeah. He never played another day in the minor leagues, but he was more often than not a good guy to deal with. If he gave you the time, then he would be very good. I was thinking about you having your last season and pool host coming back. Was this season meaningful to you? in any sort of emotional way, having the return of this iconic player to St. Louis while knowing you were nearing the end of your time at the newspaper as well. It seemed more meaningful to him. He put his arm around me one time and says, we're going to go out together here, you know? And uh, I, I wasn't expecting that. Either I had told him or somebody had told him that this was going to be my last season at, you know, at, at the full time at the paper. And he says, we'll go out together. He seemed amused by that. And even the last Game when they lost in the playoffs to Philadelphia, he gave me a big hug and says, "You know, have have a good retirement." And, and I, I said, "You too." And uh, he said, "Well, I will." <laughs> and it was it, it meant a lot to him. I think it, it, the more I thought about it, I guess it meant a lot to me too. But I hadn't factored that in uh, along the way. Is he the player you think of, even though he was gone for a decade? Is he the player who most parallels your career? Is there one Cardinal you feel most attached to through the years of covering the game? Well, I would say. It would go back a little farther than that because I, I, I wasn't the lead beat guy for the, the most of the Pujols years here, just the first couple of years, actually. And I was a columnist and I became the secondary beat guy. I would say somebody like maybe Hernandez or Simmons, even a guy, Tom Pagnazzi, caught many years in, in the 80s and 90s. Maybe he was the one that was probably here the longest um, in my tenure. I, I think Whitey is the guy I'd maybe identify with most in those years, that was 10 years and it was a, a rollicking 10 years. They won, they went to three world series and, and had a chance to go to a few other playoffs. And, and every, every day was, it was a joy to manage him because he would tell you something you hadn't really thought about the day before. And you, you had no idea what he was talking about. Then they explained it to you. 
Do managers not view that in the same? Like I remember covering baseball and you go in, and it could be Jim Fergosi or it could be whoever, John Bowles or Joe Torrey, whoever. And you'd go in and you'd all gather around the manager. And it really felt like you were getting a PhD lecture sometimes uh, or a dissertation. You could ask a question about a play or a moment or an at bat and they would break it down for you. Not always, but the good ones would. And they seem to actually take some pleasure in you understanding what they understood. Is that still a thing? Yeah. Um, the manager they have now, Oliver Marmol, will do that for me. They make him do the post-game press conference in a, a room where it's carried virtually live on TV and everybody kind of gets the same stuff. And he, he kind of shields his answers once in a while because he doesn't want to make a big deal out of some stuff on TV that he doesn't want to make a big deal out of that, that particular thing. But later he can get him and say, can I ask you about this and this? And you say, yeah, sit down here and we can talk for 10 or 15 minutes. And he'll give you the dissertation that, that you spoke of. And Whitey would be good about that. I would wait to ask my questions so everybody else was done. And he knew why I wasn't asking any questions. He knew there was more to be had in our conversations after everybody had left. That was the best part. He would tell me, exactly what he had done. And I would file that away and, and think about it and think, you know, this, I, I understand that. And then one day he did something and it bothered me no end. I could not figure it out. I didn't have a chance to ask him about it until the next afternoon. I said, why did you do what you did last night? He goes, um, he says, sometimes you just got to roll the dice. I said, that was it. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I, I guess. <laughs> Thanks, Whitey. <laughs> I was covering baseball in 2002, and on June 22nd, 2002, Cardinals pitcher Darrell Kyle died. And you and Joe Strauss, who also who died a few years ago, co-bylined the story, tragedy leaves cards devastated. Uh, on Saturday afternoon, Cardinals manager Tony LaRusso had just one thought on his mind. This is all about Flynn, Kyle's wife, and the three kids. There isn't one thought about our ball club, he said. The players, some of whom had been close to the late broadcaster Jack Buck, we're still reeling from the legendary broadcaster's death late Tuesday night. This doesn't seem real, reliever Gene Steck Schulte said. Reliever Steve Klein, who always has something to say, waved off all questions as he headed for the bus, looking straight ahead. Pitcher Matt Meyer said, unbelievable, as he too scurried to the bus. And um, Daryl Kyle, pitcher in his prime. I feel like sports and death don't really go together very well because these are people in their prime. They're young people. They're physical people. They're active people. They're celebrities. Uh, they're neon lights, they're bright lights, they're well-paid. You see them with their kids, you see them with their pretty wives, you see them on the field, um, you see them getting chains into their uniforms, they're strapping guys, and then someone dies. What is that like to cover, to experience as a writer? That day, um, I was in the press box at Wrigley Field, it was a Saturday afternoon game. You look down there and about maybe an hour before the game, hour and a half before the game, nobody's warming up on the sidelines, you know? Nobody's, nobody's out there throwing, nobody's taking infield. You're thinking, this looks kind of odd. And I got a call from somebody back at the team hotel where I had been staying and talked to one of the housekeeping people and, and said said in Spanish something to the fact that Daryl Kyle had died. And I thought, holy smokes. So I went downstairs and I tried to get as much information on this as I could. And this is before internet. So once I got it, I had nothing I could do with it. You know, <laughs> there was no tweeting. There was no nothing. I could call the radio station, I guess, but what good would that do? They would have it first and I wouldn't have it. So I got back upstairs and I told somebody, I think I said, I think we got something going on here. I, I've heard this has happened. And then shortly thereafter, I saw Mark Hirschbeck, who was the crew chief of that umpiring crew. And I, I said, 
is this true? And he said, well, it, just, it didn't come from me, but yeah, um, I've heard that we're not going to play the game because there's been a death in the Cardinal family, which then Joe Girardi had to, the Cubs player rep had to go on the field and ex explain again, the same thing, a death in the Cardinal family is the way he put it. But that was one of the strangest days of, of, of my career because it was, we had just covered Jack Buck his death Tuesday night. I did that after a game. And then Friday was the funeral. And then I got on a plane and went up to Chicago for the, for the series, got there in about the third inning for the game. And uh, they ended up playing the game. They talked to Flynn Kyle and said, you know, do you, what should we do? And she said, I think you ought to play this game Sunday night. Well, they played the game, but they was like, they were in zombies. They, they shouldn't have been out there playing. They didn't have, they didn't have a chance. And the fans, you know, Cub fans were very gracious. They didn't even cheer to any extent, really, when things went good for the Cubs. They felt bad for the Cardinals. But no other day like that in, in, in my career, I think. Um, uh, they ended up having a really good season, kind of playing for Darrell Kyle. They went to the playoffs and Giants beat them in the championship series. Uh, but it was it was something. And, and uh, I don't know that we'll ever come to grips with all that stuff. As a writer, when you were covering something like that, do you just put on your journalism hat? This is a guy you would see every day, you would talk to, you would interview. But as a, as a journalist, do you just put on your journalism blinders and go about reporting it? Or do you feel the emotions of it as well when it's going on? Both. You're going to feel the emotions, but you do have to put that hat on because people are depending on you to explain this to them. And after you get it explained to, your, to you, you want to explain it to them. So they're counting on that and they don't, they shouldn't care how you feel about it. I want to ask you one last question. Could you tell the story of the Teleramp scandal of 1980? <laughs> it started with a stupid move that I made. I was covering the Phillies Astros series, <clears throat> first two games of the playoffs in 1980, championship series. And I was going to New York to do Kansas City and the Yankees. So I had this hatchback car that I left in the hotel garage in Philadelphia. And I left my mach machine and my briefcase in there thinking, okay, I don't need to drag this into the hotel. I'm just going to leave it here and, and then get up in the morning and drive to New York. Well, I didn't go directly maybe from the ballpark to the hotel that night. So I got in pretty late. And about four o'clock, this guy calls me and says, Mr. Hummel, I got some of your stuff. I said, what are you, what are you talking about? What stuff? Were you? He says, well, I got this big blue thing, which was the color of my Teleram. And, and I had a briefcase too, which I never did get back. But Wait, can you explain to people what a Teleram is? Teleram is a, a a laptop, but if you put it in your lap, it would break your lap. It was <laughs> it was enormous. It was on the early, the cutting edge of, of technology. This is 1980, you know, not too long after typewriters, uh, and you dragged it around and weighed about 25 or 30 pounds. And if you didn't handle it right, you could write a story, which like a, it was like a a disc, and you could easily cancel the story you just had written by hitting the wrong key, you know, I mean, it was like, like a tape in there. So this guy uh, who turned out to be a, a drug dealer of some sort in Philadelphia had, had scored this telegram, <clears throat> but he had no idea what to do with it. Anyway, he calls me and then I, I said yep, about this. I said, give me another half hour. So I went down to the parking garage. I, I found the attendant down there. <clears throat> I explained to, I said, you know, my car was broken into, and this was this, some stuff was taken, or the back window was broken into. And he said, did you see anything? And apparently he had fallen asleep during this, this activity, even though I was there. So then I get back to Sarah's. The guy, the perpetrator, calls me. 
and says, do you want your stuff back? I said, yeah, I want it back. He says, well, how much money do you have? I said, I got $300. He said, I'll, I'll take that. He didn't know what to make of it. So he's going to meet me at the hotel and bring me the, the thing, and I give him $300, and it's a done deal. So I thought, well, I better enlist the Philadelphia Police Department here. So I called them, and they sent out two guys. One looked like Oliver Hardy, one looked like Stanley Laurel, you know, and they were up there, and there's a knock at the door. And these guys rush into the bathroom behind the shower curtain, and they pull out their weapons, ready to get this guy as I, as I opened the door for him. I said, boys, boys, hold on. This is only the housekeeper here. So it's, it's, you know, and they come back out and sit down, wait for another hour. Nothing happens. They're looking down below on 26 floors down and there's a, a car being stripped on the street down before them. And one guy says, you know, we should be down there. So they're sitting up here with you. I said, well, maybe so, but I'm sorry. So they took off. And then the guy calls me back and says, okay, you know, what are we going to do? I'm going to come over to the hotel again. I come over to the hotel and I'll meet you. I thought, okay, okay. And I'm not thinking ahead of what could possibly happen to me here. So I, I want to meet him in the lobby. He, I did, he didn't know that. I just want to get down there before he gets up to the room. Well, nothing happened. I go back to the room and he calls me again and said he'd been there while I was gone. And now, now what are we going to do? He said, I got an idea. Meet me at like 20th and Cherry in, in Philadelphia. There's a downtown Philadelphia there. Well, it was not too far from some of the hotels and stuff, but it was a little, kind of a dark area. I said, all right. He said, hi, well, no, it's you. I said, I've got a brown trench coat on. So uh, this, it was a fitting. You have a brown trench coat for something like this. All right. So I go down. I, I, I said, well, you know, I'm going to call the police again. I call him. The one guy comes back. Oliver Hardy did not have any interest in coming back, but Stanley Laurel came back and another guy came with him. And I couldn't drive down there because my car had been compromised the night before. So I, uh, I went to take a cab down there. Cab riders were very excited about this, this cloak and dagger stuff. And the, um, the police pull up and they decide that we should have some mark bills come into play here. Well, I said, okay, that's a good idea. Well, they wanted to mark my bills up. They didn't have a stash of this ready to go. So they marked them up and so they hopped in their car behind me and they said, okay, now when you get the, the, your machine back, have a newspaper under your arm and drop it. And then we'll know it's time to come out and go get them. They're going to station themselves at a couple, one at a convenience store, one at a gas station across the street. So I get out of the cab. I walk across the street with this newspaper and, and a guy comes up to me and says, you Mr. Hummel. I said, well, yeah, I am. He said, well, your stuff's over here. And he points over to some like forest area where there's a couple stairwells going down. And, and he says, your machine's back there. I said, I am not going down there. <laughs> yeah, so you bring that thing up here, halfway up these steps, and then we'll do it from there. He says, oh, all right. So he, he comes up, I give him the money. He starts walking away. I'm looking now, I've dropped the newspaper and the police are like, having, you know, they're having donuts or something. Not, they're not there over there. They're looking around. And the cab driver's going, he's getting away. <laughs> and he's pointing and without yelling. And uh, finally, we get the police over there and they come, they arrest the guy. And uh, he comes back and he's, they put him in the squad car and he says, I knew this would happen. And they take off. They start taking off. They say, whoa, 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 whoa. Where's my money? They said, well, that's evidence. You have to come down to, to the station. Oh. <laughs> get it. I went down there, finally got it back. And the upshot of the story is for the next Two and a half years, whenever the Cardinals played in Philadelphia, I had to go to trial for the, you know, for this, for this guy who never showed up about the first four or five times. 
And finally, the last time he was there, but he says, you know, one of my witnesses is not here. I said, there weren't any witnesses. You don't have any. Right. <laughs> and the, they, they waved it off. The police waved it off. Finally, said, so here's here's the form. Just sign this. And they had the wrong date, the wrong time, the wrong amount of stuff that was stolen. I said, okay, but we're done with this. And and they, the guy was, a, I guess, a maybe a small time drug dealer. But then uh, that was a long story. And I thought, you know, I spent maybe risk my life and three hundred dollars to get back a machine I didn't want in the first place. That's awesome. Well, let me ask you a final, final question. Do you find it weird? Are you so used to people calling you the commission, this business and commission, commission, hey, commission, blah, blah. If someone calls you Rick at a baseball game, is it strange for you? A little bit. Yeah. Uh, because over the years, the players have kind of perpetuated this, that the players in the in the late 70s and early 80s were the ones who first started calling me this, I think. And maybe a, a new player will come in and call me Rick or not call me anything. And then one day you'll hear this same player call you commish. Like they've heard somebody else do that. Let's say Wainwright would have, has done it, you know, many years, of course, but somebody like who just joined the team, like Goldsmith, for instance, only been, or Arenado had not been there that long. They're now they're calling me that. Right. And, and they, they just must've listened to what other guys were saying, you know? And uh, so I, there's a few guys that will call me Rick or just, or just not, a, not at all. Well, listen, any conversation where I get to ask about Gary Templeton, Ozzy Smith makes my heart <laughs> skip a beat. It makes me very happy. So thank well, you. I, I enjoyed it. I hopefully as much as, as, as you did. I, 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 more, I think and, uh, I, I, I some of the stories you brought up, you've done some incredible research here. And some of those stories I'd forgotten about. <laughs> That's part of the joy of it all. So thank you for doing this. Thanks, Jeff. I want to thank today's guest, Rick Hummel for joining me on true writer sling and yank. You can follow Rick on Twitter at CMSH. H-U-M-M-E-L. You have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Singing Yang. Please go to the vehicle of your choice and leave a nice review. I don't make any money for doing this. I rely on word of mouth. Music is by the Dopamine MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep writing. Dopamine.